BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to a breath of fresh earth. Taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Your journey begins. Whenever a plastic bag or bottle degrades, it breaks down into smaller pieces. They work their way into the nooks and crannies in our environment. When you wash your clothes, like synthetic fibers, synthetic fabrics, tiny plastic fibers break loose and flow out to the sea. Even when you drive, plastic bits fly off your tires and your brakes. That's why pretty much anywhere you look in the whole world, Scientists find microplastics, specks of synthetic material that are less than five, millimeter, five millimeters long. They're on the most remote mountaintops and in the deepest oceans. They're blowing in the wind all the way to the Arctic. Now microplastics are coming out of babies. Yep, they're coming out of babies' poop. Scientists said they were sifting through infants' dirty diapers. Wow, and I thought I had a crappy job. They're finding an average of 36,000 nanograms of plastic per gram of feces, PETs, 10 times the amount they found in adults. So not only do they have to check the baby's poop, they check the adult's poop. Well, it's a job. They even found it in newborns' first feces. Dun-dun-da-da! Congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson. Your baby has plastic in its poop. PET is an extremely common polymer that's known as polyester when it's used in clothing, and it's used to make plastic bottles. This study comes a year after another team of researchers calculated that preparing hot formula in plastic bottles severely erodes the material, which could dose babies with several million microplastic particles a day and perhaps nearly a billion a year. I do seem to recall that my wife had me heat up the bottles and feed our children when she was gone. Huh. Well, that explains a lot about their... No, they're great kids. Even though adults are much bigger, obviously, scientists think that Infants have more exposure, not only because they're drinking from bottles, but babies could be ingesting microplastics any number of ways. They put everything in their mouth, plastic toys, they chew on fabrics. Babies' foods are wrapped in single-use plastics. Children drink from plastic sippy cups and eat off plastic plates. They crawl around on the carpet, which are often made from polyester. Even hardwood floors are coated in polymers that shed microplastics. 
any of these could generate tiny particles that our children that we love dearly breathe or swallow. Babies are exposed to so many different things. We don't even know what kind of effect it has on them later in life. The researchers who had that crappy job I told you about earlier collected dirty diapers from six one-year-olds and ran the feces through a filter to collect the microplastics. Mm-mm-mm, that is fun. They did the same thing with three samples of meconium, a newborn's first feces. Well, it's a good thing they gave it a name. And stool samples from 10 adults. They also looked for polycarbonate plastics, which is used as a lightweight alternative to glass, like eyeglass lenses. And to make sure they only counted the microplastics that came from the infant's guts, not from their diapers, they ruled out plastic that the diapers were made out of. A particular concern was a class of chemicals called endocrine-disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, which, dis- which disrupt hormones that have been connected to reproductive, neurological, and metabolic problems. Since infants are passing microplastics in their poop, that means that they could be absorbing some of the particles. This is known as translocation. Particular small particles might pass through their gut wall and end up in other organs, including their brain. Our little children can have plastic in their brains. And we're trying so hard to raise them and be careful and love them and keep them safe. And yet the world's full of all this microplastic and now it's in our kids' brains. So unfair. (sighs) More studies are needed, and I'll let you know if I hear of anything else. It's a pretty grim outlook for Norwegian polar bears. As the ice fragments and affects polar bear habitats, the Svalbard population of the species, hey, like the seed vault, those bears are losing their genetic diversity makes the bears susceptible to disease and genetic disorders. Researchers in Norway examined genetic data from polar bears in the archipelago in the Arctic Ocean from 95 to 2016. They found that the Svalbard population of polar bears has lost 3 to 10% of their genetic diversity. The problem is when the ice fragments, it isolates the bears from larger polar bear populations. And without outside bears coming into the area to mate, the polar bears breed with their own population. That leads to more matings between closely related animals. Like you wouldn't want to have a baby with your cousin. I love my cousins, but I don't want to have babies with them. Genetic diversity is not only important to protecting against disease, but also for resilience and readiness to evolve in the face of a changing climate, and we're certainly doing that. There's not much anybody can do to help them. It's not like they can just build a bridge and say, you know, this way to more more diversity. Maybe somebody can come up with a tinder for polar bears, and Jeff Bezos can fly the bears on his spaceship somewhere for a quickie. All right, I want you guys to guess whether this story is true or false. You can potty train a cow. Of course, that's got to be false, right? Who wrote this? This is ridiculous. What kind of copy are you guys giving me to read? Wait, you're saying it's true? Huh, let me keep going here. Researchers in Germany said that calves can be trained to urinate in a designated area. 11 of 16 calves successfully entered a fenced-in latrine, and they urinated in there about 75% of the time. The calves learned through a reward and punishment method. So when a calf urinates in the latrine, the staff gives it molasses or barley. They should try chocolate. That would work. When a calf urinated in the alleyway leading to the latrine, it was sprayed with an unpleasant blast of water. How rude. All jokes aside, this could be important because waste from cattle emits greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change. 
And when urine and feces combine in a space such as a barn, it smells bad. Oh, that's not the rest of this. When they, that's combined, it forms ammonia, a compound that pollutes nearby soils and waterways. Now, if we could train the cows to urinate and defecate in a single place, like maybe a toilet, where the waste could be collected and treated, the environmental consequences could be reduced without confining the cows to a single small space. Maybe just like a big air open area where they can all just poop right there. They've shown that the calves can understand, I have to go urinate in a few minutes, seconds, whatever. I wonder if older cows will get up in the middle of the night to go pee-pee. And if they do, can they fall asleep right away? Or do they turn on their cell phones and check Twitter? It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. Okay, you want a hero? I got a hero. Wyon Nayo. He's old. He's 90 years old. He's a 90-year-old fisherman who lives in Indonesia, part of a beautiful culture that is passionate about protecting the ocean. When he was a little boy and all the years that followed, he spent most of his life on the water. He'd gather his nets, mesh sacks, and set out on his little boat off the coast of Bali. He'd listen to the waves, read the weather, track fish, learn the rhythm of the ocean currents. A beautiful story. The waters used to be a prime location for fishing. But over the last two decades, now he collects a never-ending amount of plastic pollution from the ocean, not fish. In San Francisco, there's a woman named Dana Frankoff. She's a director. She made a documentary about NIO. It's a short film called Voice Above Water. It shows how one human uses his resources to make a difference. And all of us can make a difference. We just have to do it. We just have to try. This is my little way of trying, but everyone out there listening all over the world, th think what you can do. This 90-year-old man goes out on a boat and picks up plastic out of the ocean. It's a short film. It's won a bunch of awards so far, including the First Time Film Award, the 2021 International Ocean Film Festival, and Best Short Documentary at the 2021 San Luis Obispo Film Festival. We all can do our part. So let's hear it for Wyon Nayo. In a couple of years, I'll be ready to buy my first electric vehicle. I'm very excited about it. I'm not ready to get, get rid of my Mini Cooper yet. It's only got 100,000 miles, and I get pretty good mileage, and I love driving it. But soon, in the not-too-distant future, I'll have an electric vehicle. I don't know a lot about chargers. I talk about electric vehicles all the time. Today, we're going to break down three different types of categories of chargers. This isn't going to take too long. This is just a quick little refresher course, or a first course. So level one chargers use a regular 110 volt outlet, just like a standard home plug. It takes a long time to charge a car. It takes a long time to charge the vehicle battery. This is considered a solution by some to get charging into older apartment buildings. This would allow residents who drive 30 to 40 miles a day a good option and they can charge their vehicle overnight. Level two chargers offer higher power output and use a 240 volt outlet, just like the clothes dryer or air conditioners. They're used in residential and commercial settings, like shopping malls and parking garages. And you can fill up an electric vehicle in about five hours. DC fast chargers allow for the fastest charging possible by allowing direct current into the battery without first converting it from alternating current. That's what level one and level two chargers use. DC-FC, that's DC fast chargers, uses a 480 volt outlet and can charge an electronic battery in under an hour, they cost a lot of money to install. Not all electric vehicles can charge that way. 
Level 2 chargers cost between two dollars and $5,000 to install. Now, there are subsidies available for residents and businesses to cover some of those costs. Fast chargers are significantly more expensive, requiring more than $100,000 per station in upfront costs. Providers can recoup those investments by charging higher, higher rates. So it's like putting a gas station in without the gas. No one's going to do that for free. Charging at home costs around $0.16 cents per kilowatt hour. Level 2 chargers cost around $0.44, cents, and fast chargers up to $0.59 cents per kilowatt hour. So you can figure out what you're paying for kilowatt hour in your own area. You can go online and find charging stations all over the country. Level 1 and Level 2 chargers use a standard connection that works with all electronic vehicles. But there's no such thing as standard for fast charging. That's resulted in car makers installing different charging connectors on their vehicles. Here we go again. It's like USB cords and micro A and micro B. Why can't they all just figure it out together? Japanese manufacturers using one connector and U.S. and European car makers use another. Tesla developed its own unique connector, of course, thanks Elon, but they do offer adapters, probably for a huge amount of money, that allows Tesla owners to charge at stations other than Tesla's supercharger network. Elon Musk said they would make their supercharger stations available to other electronic vehicles later in the year. And just to, to give you an idea of where we're at numbers-wise, the United States has about 43,000 public electronic vehicle charging stations and about 120,000 charging ports. Most of those are level two chargers. They're distributed very unevenly across the country, as you can imagine. You know, I talk about oil spills a lot on this show because it seems like every week there's an oil spill. But here's some good news. Developers behind the pipeline that was going to carry natural gas from Pennsylvania to New Jersey, they canceled their billion-dollar project a few days ago. There were years of protests, legal challenges, regulatory hurdles, all designed to stop them. This was a company called Penn East Pipeline. Three months after they won a key approval from the United States Supreme Court, they got rid of their 116-mile project, citing regulatory barriers, including a need for water quality permits in New Jersey that had previously been denied. The 36-inch diameter pipe would have crossed the Delaware River and dozens of other waterways along the, its route. Environmental groups said that they'd been fighting this for years. They said it would pollute rivers and wetlands. Oh, well, of course it would. It would damage preserved open space and contribute significantly to greenhouse gas emissions when it was working. We all know that. Burning natural gas produces fewer CO2 emissions than burning coal or petroleum products. Leaks throughout the natural gas system release methane, a potent greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, who has promised to transition the state away from fossil fuels, plotted the project's demise on Monday, and we say congratulations. No more pipelines. Here's your social media minute. Check them out after the show. I have a few people for you to follow on social media. Let's start with the great Michael Mann, at Michael E. Mann. He's a climate scientist. Perhaps you've seen him on Twitter, on TV, famous for the Hockey Stick and Climate Wars book, The Madhouse Effect. He's a very interesting guy to listen to. Let's move on to Ed Hawkins, at Ed underscore Hawkins, climate scientist at the University of Reading, creator of Climate Spirals and Warming Stripes. And how about Prakash Kashwan, at P.K. Ashwan, professor at University of Connecticut. And there's a few bloggers you can follow. Julian Wong, 
useful links for anyone interested in China and climate change. And Kate Shepard, a prolific blogger at Mother Jones. Thank you for listening. Satoshi Nakamoto minted the world's first cryptocurrency in 2009. That's if he even exists. The plan was to create a decentralized payment platform that was going to revolutionize the way we buy and sell everything. The point of Bitcoin, according to Nakamoto's plan, was to enable instantaneous borderless transactions without high fees or foreign exchange barriers. There's no doubt that Bitcoin has gone mainstream. Not quite the way Nakamoto imagined. Instead of helping us trans make transactions every day, cryptocurrencies have by and large become speculative assets, like a digital gold, attracting investors who believe they'll be the ones to resell their holdings for big profits. The Bitcoin gold rush has come with a catch. Massive electricity consumption. Think of it this way. If Bitcoin was a country, it would rank in the top 30 worldwide for energy use. That's enough electricity to power countries with populations in the tens of millions with an environmental burden of an estimated 34 megatons of carbon emissions. Now, Bitcoin isn't unique among cryptocurrencies in terms of its environmental burden, but it's probably the highest profile one. And they make them an easy one to pick on. The blockchain technology that underlies it, meanwhile, could be the key to a greener future. But why does Bitcoin consume so much energy? I didn't really understand. I mean, I knew bits and pieces of it on the outside, but never really got into the minutiae. It doesn't seem like it should require enormous amounts of electricity. I mean, all you have to do is point and click and tap on your smartphone and buy and sell a cryptocurrency. How could that really be such a big deal? We've had electronic networks that do that for all kinds of things, making digital transactions. But Bitcoin's decentralized structure makes it a huge carbon emission footprint. That's because in order to verify the transactions, Bitcoin requires computers to solve ever more complex math problems. Now we're getting into some deep stuff. So just kind of follow along best you can. I'll try to do the best I can to explain it. The basic concept is that cryptocurrency, that the world refers to as proof of work, and it's drastically more energy intensive than just verifying transactions on a centralized network. Like for Bitcoin, it's done by having many different competitors all conduct a race to see how quickly they can package the transactions and solve a small mathematical problem. The fastest computer not only certifies the transaction, but also gets a small reward for its trouble in the form of a Bitcoin payment. In Bitcoin's early days, process didn't consume nation-sized amounts of electricity. But it's kind of part of the cryptocurrency's technology for the math puzzles to become much harder as more people try to solve them. And this only accelerates as more people attempt to buy into Bitcoin. To fight against this, more and more specialized computers called rigs are entering the arena, pouring huge amounts of computational and electrical energy into the ecosystem in the race to be the first to solve Bitcoin math puzzles and get the prize. That means that even though there may be hundreds of thousands of computers trying to solve that same problem, only one can win the Bitcoin money. 99.9% .9 of all the machines that did the work just throw away the results because they didn't win the race. This process produces a fair and secure result, but it creates a ton of carbon emissions. Processes also take an immense amount of time, up to 10 minutes per Bitcoin transaction. Other digital transaction, like when you use your Visa card, takes less than a second. 
Well, how do we fix it? It doesn't require us returning to centralized systems like Visa's network. Bitcoin does have a few options. 39% of proof-of-work mining is performed using renewable energy. So obviously there's 61% more they could do to make all their energy requirements renewable. A lot of companies have tried to address this problem, each coming up with new ways to bring environmentally friendly energy to Bitcoin. Environmental impact aside, right now electricity costs eat into an estimated 28% of Bitcoin's mining profitability each year. By creating these coins more efficiently, miners will not only increase their profitability, but they may make it more likely that a true, truly revolutionary aspect of Bitcoin, the blockchain, goes mainstream. I would imagine integrating blockchain technology, just like a public ledger of the accounts, into every part of the economic life could lower the carbon footprint for many businesses. There's a lot to learn about blockchain and Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. So dive into the internet, see what you can uh, read on your own, besides getting a initial course here if you haven't heard much about it before now. I don't mess with Bitcoins. My children do. I'm still having a hard time understanding that it actually has real value and not just like imaginary money that's like floating around that could disappear in a second. But maybe that's just because of my age. I'll have to keep working on that. Birthday Bash of the Century. Today's birthday boy is Walter Monk. He was born in October of 1917, and sadly, we lost him in 2019. He was an American physical oceanographer, one of the first scientists to bring statistical methods of, to the analysis of oceanographic data. He worked on a wide range of topics, surface waves, the Earth's rotation, tides, internal wave, deep ocean drilling into the seafloor, acoustical measurements of ocean properties, sea level rise, and climate change. He was even instrumental in the landing in World War II of the Allied troops in Normandy. Monk and associate were predicting the heights of ocean surface waves. Monk has won many awards, and you know I love to tell everybody about awards. He was a Guggenheim Fellow, a Fulbright Fellow. He was a mighty fine fellow. He won the Arthur Day Medal, the American Academy of Achievement, the Maurice Ewing Medal, the Captain Robert Dexter Conrad Award, the National Medal of Science, the William Bowie Medal, the American Ge um, Geophysical Union, the Kyoto Prize, Prince Albert I Medal, the Crawford Prize, the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. And in 1933, he was given the Walter Monk Award. Talk about an ego lifter given in recognition to distinguished research in oceanography related to sound and the sea. They've even had two species have been named after him. One is a deep sea worm. Okay, that's not quite so glamorous, but still, how many of you have, out there have an animal named after you? The other is Monk's devil ray, a small relative of giant manta rays living in huge schools with the ability to leap far out of the water. I can't jump out of the water. In 2017, there was a documentary called Spirit of Discovery that follows Monk in an expedition with a student to Baja, Mexico, the place where the species was first found and described. Monk was born in Austria. When the Nazis took over, he applied to be a citizen of the United States. The first time, he failed. He gave an overly detailed answer to questions about the Constitution. He got in the next year. A long life with many fine contributions to society. Well, thanks for listening to episode 40. Can't believe it's 40 episodes. So what did we learn today that we could have seen on the national news? Well, I never see any stories about polar bears. I never see any stories about 
cows going to the bathroom. I never heard of that guy who, the 90-year-old man in Bali. We hear about chargers a little bit, but hopefully you learned a little bit more about them. We learned about the pipeline. I told you about some people to follow on social media. Hopefully I gave you a little dose on Bitcoin. We learned about a famous scientist. And most importantly, we learned about baby's poop, and it's full of plastic. So until next time, thank you all for listening. I appreciate you spending uh, 20 minutes with me every couple of weeks. It means a lot to me, emotionally and mentally. Until then, good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.